I don't know how familiar you are with this book, uh, but there's certain things that you'll notice about it. And as we said before, the best understanding of it is not this just this lengthy listing and unfolding of all these different events coming down uh, after the ascent of Christ into heaven up to the time of his second coming and the things that take place immediately after that. But it's, it's best understood to be a book that is arranged in the form of seven particular visions which reveal very often the same sorts of things, sometimes particular things in greater detail than in, in others. And this has been our approach to studying the book of Revelation. And uh, the particular vision that we happen to be in at this point has been going on for a couple of chapters, started back in 17 uh, and, and 18. And the focus in those first two chapters has been upon uh, the demise of what we've come to call the city of God or the city of man or the city of wickedness, the evilness in the world. God's judgment coming. The last two chapters have been all about judgment. But I want to challenge us with the idea that even though that's true, it's not necessarily been in relationship to the very final judgment. The focus has been upon things going on in the world. And God's wrath in part being poured out upon the wickedness and evilness and immoralities of the world as epitomized by the great harlot, the seductress, the great city Babylon, all which represent the evil forces at work in this world full of lies and deceit and and, and false promises and this, that, and the other. And as we consider the last chapter those kings of the world that had allied themselves with uh, the great harlot. Uh, And then we talked about the merchants who had made much money off of uh, sexual immoralities and and other immoral practices driven by greed. Uh, And we also talked about the seafaring people who had fallen into that same category. Who all now watched as their idol burned in ashes. Their world was completely undone. They stood at a distance and watched because they were afraid. They were afraid of many things, and one of those is certainly this, that their end would be the same thing. And right they are. What we have in chapter 19 is the response in heaven in in, in watching what has taken place in the world in 17 and 18. The heavenly host rejoicing at the greatness and the glory of God that was demonstrated in what has taken place now in the world and the destruction of Babylon the Great. So let's read. After these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous 
For he has judged the great harlot who was, was, was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the 20 or, or the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all of you, his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I, tell, I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold uh, the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in with blood in blood. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed. In fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God uh, Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hallelujah. Four times. The interesting thing is that word, even though we find it very often in our music, we sang Hallelujah this morning. This is the only place in the New Testament where you find it. The only place in all of the New Testament you find the word Hallelujah. The roots are, uh, of it actually are in the Old Testament. You find it reflected in, in some of the Psalms. It simply means in Hebrew, praise Yah, pray, praise God. Praise the Lord. First of all, we hear the great multitudes in heaven, heaven, heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Who is the multitude? Well, we've already read about a great multitude that has been gathered in heaven around the throne of God. In chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, includes those 
four living creatures immediately around the throne who minister to God unceasingly, who praise him unceasingly. Those 24 elders that were gathered around them that regularly fall before him, casting their crowns at the base of the throne and giving praise and honor and glory to him. The myriads and myriads of angels surrounding the throne who praise God unceasingly and also the souls of those brothers and sisters of ours who have gone forth before us who are there under the altar and surrounding the throne. The heavenly hosts praising God for what he has done in this world. Let's be honest, this morning sometimes when we talk about God's judgment, sometimes it seems overly harsh and it makes us cringe. There's a part of us that wants to say, aren't you doing, overdoing things at least to just a little bit here, Lord? Is this destruction what people really have earned for themselves? Is this destruction what people really have as their due? We can relate to them because we are sinners too. We know what it's like to sin because we've done it. We know what it's like to sin because we still regularly do it. There's a part of us that joins us with other people. And the sin within us tells us. God's making more of a deal out of this that I really think he ought to. But that's sin. It's a measure of where we are compared to where we will be. Because there will come a day, guys and gals, when we will have no doubt that people have only gotten what they have earned. They've only received what they deserve. Not one bit more, but certainly not one bit less. The advantage that we have is that we don't get what we deserve. We get what we don't deserve. That is God's love, God's blessing. God's favor. God's forgiveness. If we had died and we were in heaven right now, our voices would be heard with a heavenly host. As we see the judgment of God fall upon the wicked and evil in this world without restriction no longer hindered by sin
God's judgments are always true and righteous. God has never done one evil thing in all of eternity. He's never had one evil thought. He's never had one wicked inclination. He is holy and he is righteous and he is pure in absolutely every way that we can conceive of and far many that we cannot. He is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be praised. He never makes mistakes. Ever. Did we say that about human courts? You know, I, th- I think that all of us would probably do believe this, that there are people sitting in prison for crimes they did not commit. We understand that there have been people executed for crimes they did not commit in the past. Maybe even today that will happen. But we need to understand that there's a very big difference between the courtroom of man and the, and the courtroom of man is going to make mistakes. Because those judgments are made by fallible people in every case. But God is not fallible. His judgments are always right on. Always. Not more. Not less. He created this world for us for our pleasure, for our enjoyment. A paradise. The perfect place that our heart even now yearns for. That's how he created it. Man's the one who messed it up. We created, our sin created this mess that we call the world. God is judged for a number of reasons. But one of those is certainly this. Remember back in chapter 6, the martyrs, the souls of the martyrs under the altar in that heavenly throne room, crying out unceasingly to God all the time. When, 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 basically, when are you going to avenge us? In the final judgment, God will do just that. It's one of the reasons. That the judgment comes is to bring justice to his people. So one hallelujah is not enough. They sing hallelujah again. 
Her smoke rises up forever and ever. That when this happens, this is going to be permanent. You and I are not used to absolute permanence. We're used to things changing. I mean, relationships you have with other people. Maybe they're people you've known for a long time, you've loved for a long time, but I would imagine your relationship with them today is not exactly what it was at one time. Hopefully it's grown deeper and better. And Eternity is not something we can wrap our head around. Because we're used to things having a beginning and we're used to things having an end. You have the elders in heaven and those four living creatures and they fall down and they worship the God who sits on the throne. And they say, hallelujah. There's a voice that comes from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all of you, his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Whose voice is this? Well, you read the different commentators and they come to different conclusions. The only one I can come to is it cannot be an angel. Several times in this book, John has heard a voice, a familiar voice, the voice of Jesus. A number of times, and I think there's a very good chance this is Jesus speaking, the Lamb who now is sitting on the throne. Give praise to our God, all of you, his bondservants. We were talking a few weeks ago in the theology thing that we do on Wednesday nights about the economic trinity. And that is basically, as Christians, we understand this, that God exists as a trinity of persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He always has. When it comes to the economic truth, and it has to do with this, is that clearly in Scripture, the different persons of the Godhead play specific roles in salvation. The Father sent the Son. The Son came. The Son redeemed. The Holy Spirit takes what Christ has done and applies it specifically to us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. When one speaks, they all speak. In full agreement. 
Absolutely. There's a call to give praise to our God. All of his bondservants. Every one. Some people picture heaven as being a place where we don't do anything but worship God all the time. We're all going to be gathered around the throne for all of eternity and do nothing but sing praises to God. That's not, that's not the picture the Bible gives us. That we will have life. That we will work. Etc., etc., etc. But see, the big difference is this is that in everything we do, we will also worship God. Even in the smallest things, as we go through, there won't be days, because there won't be any sun. But as eternity unfolds, we will unceasingly worship God, which He is worthy of, which He is due unceasingly in everything that we do. Some of you, I would imagine, have been told your whole lifetime that you're small and insignificant. We interviewed a guy who was, who was approved for ordination uh, last Wednesday, and he was one of the smallest men I've ever seen in my whole lifetime. Little tiny guy. And he knows it. Came up more than once in our conversation. That his whole lifetime, there's a sense in which a lot of people have judged him based upon his size. Not very great, but small and insignificant in the eyes of some people. In the new heavens and the new earth, things like that will have no part of the picture at all. We will all be great. Because we will have God fully, completely, absolutely. People will no longer judge either other people based upon what they perceive is their significance or insignificance. We will all have the greatest significance possible. Size, looks, intelligence, 
All of those things that we use to judge other people by all the time will be gone forever. There will be no great. There will be no small. There will be no insignificant. And again, the voice of the great multitude and the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out a fourth time, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Is God reigning now? Has God reigned all along? Has anyone ever really threatened the throne of God? Was Satan a a threat to God when he rebelled in heaven and tried to overthrow God and push him off of his throne because he wanted the throne for himself? Satan is a created being. The only power and authority he has is the power and authority that God grants to him. God could squash him like a grape at any moment. He is no threat to him, even though he believes that he is. He's the great deceiver, and and I've thought about this a lot, and I really believe this. I think he is so deceptive that he deceived himself into believing that eventually he will be able to do that. That somehow, some way, that in the end, that he will be victorious over God. God reigns. God has always reigned. He is the creator. He is the Lord of all. He is God Almighty. He's been reigning not just since the creation of the universe and the world and people. He's been reigning forever. Eternally. The beginning of his reign never was. There was no beginning. It just has been. Always. And it always will be. But there are times when others have refused to acknowledge it. Every one of them a being created by him. There are no other beings other than God that were not created. The angels, the fallen angels, the demons, people, those four living creatures, those 24 elders, all products of creation. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him 
For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Sweet words. Wonderful words. The marriage of the, of the Lamb to his bride, the church. At this point, is coming to fulfillment, fruition. Marriage is something that people in every culture, to some degree, have celebrated. It's one of the most celebratory things that people do, is weddings. Marriage is such a sacred thing, a God-given gift. But what we're talking about here is people being wedded to Christ. Being married to Christ. The church is his bride. Caroline got married. It's been almost a year and a half, not quite a half a year ago. I tell you, one of the hardest things I've done in my lifetime is not invite everybody in the church to her wedding. We couldn't. We just simply, it just simply could not be done. And I hated it. I wanted all of y'all there. See, we all make decisions when it comes to things like that. And sometimes circumstances push us in a direction that we don't really want to go in, but we don't have any choice. This is a marriage, a wedding that no one wants to miss, that has any idea what it really is. It is the marriage above all marriages. It's the marriage that all other marriages point toward. It is what we were made for. It is why we were created. To be married eternally to God himself. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him who is worthy of it, who deserves all the glory.
was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, and the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We talked about linen just a few weeks ago, how it became one of those commodities that was so prevalent in, in, in the Roman Catholic or the Roman Empire, made possible by all the trade that took place and all the, with all the nations surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. Linen was one of the, the things that was just a, probably a very refreshing thing, but we need to understand something, that only people that were wealthy could afford to buy linen. Only people that had money could afford it. Most other people had wool. Remember the wool underwear we talked about? Our garb here is described as fine linen. It's not made of cotton. It's made of good works. Good works for God. I want to cautious, caution us sometimes from believing this, that Jesus just covered over our sins, that he's put this cloak of righteousness on us, that the sin is still there and all that. It just covers it over so that you can't see it or experience it anymore. According to Scripture, our sins are gone. In the eyes of God, when he looks upon you now, he no longer sees a sinner. He no longer sees your sin because your sin has been paid in full. It's gone. It doesn't exist. With that said, though, I do want to say that there's another sense that is expressed biblically in that sense is that we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And that righteousness is the basis by which we are accepted. He said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So how blessed do you feel? Really? I know that life for some of you right now is not real great. That life right now is not good. Doesn't seem good. It's hard to find any good in it. But let me just tell you, as bad as things get, as rotten and nasty as the world may seem, as isolated as we may feel, almost abandoned at times, we are not. 
We are the most blessed people. Most blessed people of all that have ever lived on planet Earth. Because we know God. We know that God, the God who really is, we know his love. We know his tenderness. We know his care. He doesn't promise that this this world is going to be hunky-dory. He says that, in fact, we will have tribulation. Period. But know in the middle of that tribulation that he will never, ever, ever leave you. He will never, ever desert you. He will never, ever give up on you. You are his. He has bought you. Don't give up on him. Because he will never give up on you.